0: Do you know what it is to lie tossing and turning in the night when time seems almost to stand still when it feels like morning is never going to come and perhaps you've felt like that in your waking hours as well you you face the dark night of an illness whether that's your own illness or or the illness of someone you love Or or the dark night of of seeing everyone else's lives around you seem to click into place uh, and it seems like you're still waiting uh, and and you know what it is to feel left behind. Or or you've known the pain and anxiety of of family division, relationship troubles, financial difficulties. Or you know the dark night of living with a situation that, that you've brought on yourself because of your own sin. Your pillow is wet with weeping and it seems like morning's never going to come. Well, that's an experience that David, the writer of this psalm, had as well. But as he he looks back on it here, having come through the other side, having been through that experience, it gives him the confidence to say that though weeping may be our experience for the night, The joy will come in the morning. and So if you want a a title for for, for, uh, the sermon tonight, that's probably the best way to sum it up. Joy comes in the morning. That was true for David and it will be true for every believer in Jesus Christ. Even if for some, the, the morning that restores their joy won't be until the morning of their own resurrection. We're going to look at this psalm under three headings this evening in the form of three exhortations that the Holy Spirit has for us here. And the first exhortation, the first encouragement is to look back with gratitude for deliverance from disaster. Look back with gratitude for deliverance from disaster. Someone has said that the title of this psalm is a bit like, like a brief little description you might find on the back of an old photo. Uh, the, the title of this psalm, it's a bit in capital letters there where it says a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Uh, why is that a bit like a comment on the back of an old photo? Well, because it tells us some things, but it doesn't tell us quite as much as we might want to know maybe you find an old photo and it says in the back John and Willie on the farm uh, and you recognize John he's your great uncle but but who's beside him is it is it Willie his brother or, or is it Willie his cousin uh, and whose farm is it anyway is it John's is it Willie's is it someone else's uh, and with this psalm well, well we know that David is the king uh, we, we understand what the dedication would be about, but, but what, what is the temple that it's talking about? Because the word is literally just house. Uh, so, and some versions have it, a song, at the dedication of the, of the house. So it could be one of two houses that, that David himself lives in in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the second of which was a palace. Uh, according to Deuteronomy 20 verse 5, if a man built a new house, he was to dedicate it. So it could be speaking about the dedication of one of David's own houses. Or it, it could be uh, talking about God's house, the temple, and the dedication of it. Boys and girls, do you remember who built the temple, the first temple? Well, well, it, it wasn't David, but it was David's son, Solomon. So Solomon built the temple. But David writes this psalm. And yet David bought the the site for the temple. It's as if David bought the the building site for the temple. We read about it in 1 Chronicles 21. and David dedicated the site with an altar and burnt offerings. And even before the foundations were in, even before one brick had been laid on another, uh, David said, this is the house of the Lord God. There wasn't a temple yet, but David, he looks at this plot of land and he says, this is the house of the Lord so, if I had to, to pick one setting for the psalm, I'd probably go for, for that one. The dedication of the, the site of the temple, uh, and also the psalm, it could have been written in David's time and used, used later on. But whatever the dedication is referring to, just before it happened, disaster almost struck. Based on the word healed at the end of verse 2, many say that this must have been a physical illness, an illness which in verse 3 brought David down to Sheol or or the grave uh, and which led him to cry out in verse 9, what prophet is there in my death? He was staring death in the face. Those who think the psalm fits best with David's dedication of the temple site, the, the, the building site for it, uh, they, they tie this into the plague that came on the land. Uh, you might remember David had, had sinned against God by calling for a census. Uh, what, what's wrong with a census? You might say, well, it was, it was David putting his trust in his human resources and the men he had rather than God. Uh, and God had given him three options. He says, in punishment, either you can have three years of famine, three months of devastation by your enemies, or three days of pestilence. And David says, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. But whatever the occasion, David had been confronted with the prospect of death. He had been brought face to face with his own mortality. Uh, maybe uh, some here know, know what that's like. You've gone through an experience you think, actually, I might not come out the other side of this. And, and so he begins the psalm, having now come out the other side, he says, I will extol you, O Lord. What, what does extol mean? It means lift up. It means I will lift you up. I will declare how highly exalted you are. And why is he going to do that? Because, he says, you have drawn me out. God had lifted him out of the pit that he was in, just like a bucket is lifted out of a well. You know, if, if, if there's a bucket down at the bottom of a well, that, that bucket is never going to get out of the well. You, 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 can, you can say whatever you want to the bucket, but it's going to stay there. It needs someone to, to pull it out. And that's what God has done for us. We have been in situations that we could never have got out of, but God has lifted us up. So, in verse 1 here, David is extolling, he's lifting up the God who has lifted him up. And also in verse 1, the God, he hasn't let his foes rejoice over him. Uh, boys and girls, what's, what's a foe? Well, a foe is an enemy. Uh, if someone is your foe, they're your enemy. Uh, Uh, And here, uh, David says that God hasn't let his enemies rejoice over him. He hasn't let his enemies laugh at him. And I think there's more here than just David not wanting to be laughed at by other people. David is God's king. And for God's enemies to laugh at God's king is for them to laugh at God himself. And actually, like almost every verse of the psalm, this psalm fits even better with Jesus than it does with David. Uh, Jesus is God's ultimate king, uh, the true son of David, who God raised from the dead and, and turned the tables uh, on his enemies, of uh, both his human enemies and also that unholy trinity of Satan, sin and death. And so Jesus... Thinking of, of Satan's sin and death, he can say, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. In fact, in verse 3, uh, to put that word in, in David's mouth, it can only ever be figurative because David was never literally brought back from Sheol, the grave, the realm of the dead. His life wasn't actually restored to him. It, David faced death many times, but he didn't actually die. God rescued him. Uh, he didn't actually die until till he was a lot older. He, he never experienced a literal resurrection. But that's what this psalm talks about. But what David didn't actually experience, Jesus did. And so going to the cross the Lord Jesus could confidently have sung verse 3, knowing that God would bring up a soul from Sheol, knowing that God would restore his life. And after the resurrection, the Lord Jesus could have sung verse 3 as no one else ever had. And as we sing this psalm, we do so in Christ, knowing what we've been delivered from, not just a, a perilous situation of, of physical health, a, a near-death experience, but knowing that we have been delivered from hell itself. Or at least we, we know that on one level, we know it intellectually, but only one day will we truly grasp, if even then, what we have been rescued from. Uh, as Robert Murray McShane put it, When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and hills to fall. When I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink. Then Lord shall I fully know not till then how much I owe. We just have the the slightest sense of what we've been rescued from. One day we will know much more fully. We will know how much we owe. But in this life, as we do get glimpses of what we've been rescued from, it's not enough simply for us to praise God individually, ourselves, but we call others to do so. The psalm begins, I will you extol, but by verse 4, it's not just I, it's sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. It's the risen Lord Jesus calling us to worship and leading us in our praise. And he's reminding us here of our obligation. In the 1990s, an American World War II veteran fulfilled a long-held desire of going back to the Netherlands uh, to revisit the battlegrounds he had fought on almost 50 years before. After they'd visited uh, the battlegrounds, his new Dutch friends took him to a memorial to uh, one of the, the most famous battles that he fought in. In front of the memorial there were several vases of freshly cut flowers Uh, and the old veteran he looked at the flowers and he said well it looks like we've come here just in time, what's the special occasion? Uh, And as guide said there is no special occasion. Every day we keep fresh flowers here and at the other memorials. In fact we bring school children here regularly so that they will know the great price that was paid for our freedom. They recognised that they had an ongoing obligation to remember and praise. And how much more do we, as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, that's why we keep on praising him, day after day, by ourselves and our families, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, as we come together. And it's why we will keep on doing so for eternity. Because we have an ongoing obligation to remember and praise. What would it have been if that veteran had come back to the Netherlands and, and people, had, people had mocked him, uh, people had refused to help him. That would have been a, a terrible thing. If the sacrifice that he had made, the sacrifice his friends had made, if that had been, if that had been forgotten within a few decades and we we have an ongoing obligation a joyful obligation to remember and praise so firstly this evening we're to look back with gratitude for deliverance from disaster and as we take these words on redeemed lips this evening whatever the precise circumstances in which they were written it it all fades into the background As we sing these words, the Holy Spirit has given us to fulfil that joyful obligation to remember and praise. But then secondly, this evening, we have the exhortation to praise the God whose anger lasts but a moment. Praise the God whose anger lasts but a moment. When we get to verses 5 through 7, we have a hint that this disaster that David had faced was one of his own making. Uh, verse 5 mentions God's anger. It implies that David had provoked God's anger. So, what had he done to provoke it? Well, we find the answer in verse 6, and that is overconfidence or, or self confidence. David had gone through a season in his life where his trust had been in himself rather than in God. Uh, That would actually seem to fit quite well with the time when David conducts the census and and he's counting up his own resources rather than looking to God. But either way it's a time in his life where where David looks back and, and thinks that he has achieved it all. God had been so good to David in delivering him, bringing him to the throne, delivering him from all his enemies. And as a result, David in verse 6 was experiencing a time of prosperity, a time of ease and rest. And as a result, he says, verse 6, I shall never be moved. Or as one translation puts it, no one can stop me now. He looks at the past and all that that he has achieved and he forgets that he achieved it with God's help. And then he looks to the future and he thinks, well, everything will be fine because of who I am and what I can do and the resources that I have in and of myself. And it was probably quite a subtle thing. I'm sure David didn't stop going through the outward forms of God's worship. And of course, verse 7, as he looks back, he knows that it's all of God. God was the one who had made his mountain, his kingdom stand strong. And if you'd asked him at the time, I'm sure sure he would have said that. It's God, it's not me, it's God. But in our own subtle way, we, we can be quite good at taking credit for the things that God has done. The things that God has done through us, even if we we pay lip service to God in the process, maybe a, a particular temptation for those of us who are ministers, we pay lip service. Yes, God God has blessed us, but but we we want to take a little bit of the credit. We're not as blatant about it as Nebuchadnezzar once was. Remember, boys and girls, do you remember the, the story? Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar looked out of the city of Babylon and he said is not this great babylon which which i have built by my mighty power uh, and do you remember what happens to him he was driven away from human beings he had to live in the fields like an ox like a cow until he realized that everything he had had been given to him by god He took the credit for where he had gotten to. He looked to the future, there was no room for God and God God made him live like an animal. But what about David here? There's nothing quite so dramatic as what happened to the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar but it was absolutely devastating for David. The second half of verse 7 You hid your face, I was dismayed. David, for a time, lost the sense of God's presence and he was absolutely shattered by that. The word dismayed is too weak a translation. Uh, One version uses the word shattered. Uh, The word itself in the original means to be horrified out of one's senses. To be horrified out of your senses. It's a word that brings up images of Gethsemane or Calvary. In fact, it does ultimately point us forward to the one who would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God's face seemed to be hidden from him on the cross? Does verse 7 not describe our Lord's experience on the cross? By your favour, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. He lived his whole life with the favour of God upon him. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But then on the cross, he would say, You hid your face. I was dismayed. Now, of course, the the huge difference uh, with the Lord Jesus is is that God wasn't hiding his face uh, because of any sin that Christ had committed. But he was hiding his face because Jesus was on the cross as the sin-bearer. And as God hides his face from David here... David's pleas get increasingly desperate in verse 8. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. And then in verse 9, David asks God three questions. Last week, uh, I said that someone had gone through the top 25 Christian songs today and found that they didn't ask a single question of God, whereas the Psalms are full of questions And here we have three in a row. And they can be summed up in the first line of verse 9. What profit is there in my death or my blood? Uh, Or as another version puts it, speaking to God, what will you gain if I die? Imagine saying that. Imagine saying to God, God, what what will you gain if I die? I think even for those of us who are used to the Psalms, it's sort of an eyebrow-raising question, David is saying, Lord, if you kill me, what benefit will that be to you? Because you'll have one less worshipper. It's quite a, quite a shocking thing to say. And I think what we need to realise what David isn't trying to do here. He's not trying to give us a theology of life after death. Do the dead praise God? Well, in heaven, yes. But David's talking about here and now. And he's saying, corpses don't sing praise. Corpses don't sing praise. And maybe we instinctively shy away from this type of language David uses. Perhaps because we think it sounds irreverent. Or maybe because what we hear David saying is that he's so important that God couldn't possibly do without his praise. But that's not what he's saying at all. When David is in his his right mind, as he is here, his view of God is very big and his view of man is very small. This is a prayer that starts with God's interests. It asks the question, what glory will God have from all this? He's concerned about God's glory. And it's also to assume that the whole rationale for our existence is to praise God. You, know, We could, I guess, pray this as a congregation. You know, maybe there, there would be a time when we would pray to God, God... What will it profit you if this congregation here is snuffed out? Not because we think we're so great that we need to keep going, but for the glory of God, that God would be worshipped in this community. I think if we lived our lives in light of David's two assumptions, they might be different from they are. If God's glory was really at the foundation of everything... It would affect the decisions that we take. It would affect the value that we place on worship. If the two questions that dominated our thinking were, were, what glory will God have from all this? What what glory will will God have from from where I live, from, from what I do with my life, from what I spend my energies doing? And if we asked, how can I live out this truth that the whole reason for my existence is to praise God? Our lives might be different. The lives of of many around us certainly would. And as David cries out to God, as he pleads in verse 10, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. It's a a little, a good RO prayer to remember at times. when You're in a situation maybe and and you don't even have time to, to, to stop or think about it and pray. Just... Pray, O Lord, be my helper. Uh, and as David prays, the Lord answers him. And David can say in verse 11, You have turned my mourning into dancing. That's the, the verse on the boys and girls worksheet. You've turned my mourning into dancing. I notice, by the way, David says turned. It's not that, that God has completely got rid of it, but, but, he, but he's turned it. The, the very... Uh, the very thing that that caused David such misery David turned God turned and used for good and, and the deliverance from that suffering becomes a reason for praise uh, it becomes yet another reason to praise the God whose anger lasts but a moment so firstly tonight we, we, we've heard the call to look back with gratitude for deliverance from disaster Secondly, the call to praise the God whose anger lasts but a moment. Then thirdly and finally, remember that morning is coming. Remember that morning is coming. Perhaps you've seen the musical Annie or the film version of it. Annie, the 11-year-old red-headed orphan and in one of its most famous songs Annie sings the sun'll come out tomorrow bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun she goes on when I'm stuck with a day that's grey and lonely I just stick up my chin and grin and say the sun'll come out tomorrow so you can hang on till tomorrow come what may Annie is confident that something better is coming tomorrow but she doesn't actually have anything concrete to base her optimism on. Other than the thought that it can't be, can't be worse than today. But for us as Christians, verse 5 gives us the tremendous confidence that something better really is coming. That though weeping may tarry for the night, the joy will come in the morning. And the word... Hari here is brilliant because, because it actually means to stay the night somewhere. Have you ever had someone coming to stay the night and deep down you haven't really been looking forward to it but you reassure yourself by saying well it's only one night and they'll be gone in the morning. Uh, maybe no one's going to admit to that. Uh, the house that we stayed in on holiday it had a whole, a whole set of Mr. Men books Uh, And One of the stories had Mr. Messy coming to stay at Mr. Tidy's house Uh, and that was obviously a recipe for disaster Uh, but the only thing that kept Mr. Tidy going was knowing that he wasn't going to stay forever. And in this psalm God wants to reassure us that even though weeping comes to us as an overnight visitor, that's all it is. Yes, this unwelcome overnight visitor may make his presence felt during what seems like an unending night, but joy will come in the morning. In other words, our trials, though they cause us much anguish and weeping and heartache, they will come to an end. Even if those trials are things that we've brought on ourselves by our own sin God wants us to know that his anger is but for a moment and his pleasure is for a lifetime. And if we're facing trials in our lives right now, if you're going through trials at the moment, whether that's something you've brought on on yourself or whether it's something completely outside of your control, the devil would love you to despair by thinking that that trial is never going to come to an end. If someone is in the midst of depression or mental anguish or, or going through a particularly difficult season of life, one thing that will extinguish their hope is to think that, that this is it. I, I'm never getting out of it. This is the way it's, it's always going to be. But this psalm, it holds out hope for us that the normal pattern of God's dealings with us is that difficult seasons in life will pass. Not always, of course, but it's the normal pattern of God's dealings. It reminds me of the the story about a king who, who asked his wise men to come up with a quote that would always be true in every circumstance. And the wise men consulted with one another, and the quote that they came up with was, This too shall pass. And the king was so impressed that he had it inscribed on a ring. And so if he was ever tempted to be proud at all that he had, like like Nebuchadnezzar, like, like David was, he would look at his ring and be reminded, this too shall pass, it wouldn't last. But on the other hand, if he was tempted to despair because of something he was going through, he would look at the ring and be reminded that that too would pass, his suffering would pass, that season of life wouldn't last forever. But what we have here in Psalm 30, it's actually even more powerful than that because it's, it's a reminder that this is normally the way God works in our lives. Weeping lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy is a, a fruit of the Spirit. It, it is part of the normal Christian experience. But what about people who face lifelong trials because, because we all... No people they have maybe they're on our our hearts right now is this verse true for them well yes it is because ultimately the promise that joy will come in the morning speaks of jesus resurrection and ours as St. augustine put it we weep only until that morning of resurrection gladness we weep only until that morning of resurrection gladness and so even if we face a trial in this life that never comes to an end, we know that mourning is coming. Morning is coming. And as we draw things to a close tonight, let me tell you about two men who understood that and who drew that comfort from this psalm. The first was called James Hannington. He was an English uh, missionary and he was the first bishop of East Africa. In 1885, shortly after reaching Uganda, he was imprisoned. After eight days captivity, he wrote in his diary, I can hear no news, but was held up by Psalm 30, which came with great power. A hyena howled near me last night, smelling a sick man, but I hope it is not to have me yet. That was his last diary entry. Later that day, at the age of 37, he was killed is speared to death. A dedication stone in his memory erected at Hove in England bears the inscription Thou hast turned my heaviness into joy. It's Psalm twelve or Psalm thirty verse twelve, taken from the Book of Common Prayer. His trial didn't end his life, but the very spears of his captors turned his mourning into dancing. The second man who drew comfort from this psalm was called John Herwin. He lived in the Netherlands in the 1500s. It was at a time when King Philip of Spain had sent an army of 10,000 men to the Netherlands to hunt down Protestants. Herwin was arrested, imprisoned and sentenced to death. When he was brought to the place of execution he began to sing from Psalm 30. Uh, and, a, and a friar uh, interrupted him uh, a friar part of, part of the Catholic Church uh, who was, was there with him he, he interrupted him he told him to, to save himself but, but Herwin kept on singing uh, and many of the people joined in with him when he finished the psalm he was strangled and he was burnt to ashes the final words that he sung were the final words of this psalm You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Imagine having the confidence to sing those words as the the flames are starting to leap up around you. There's a poem uh, written about it. And it finishes with the lines, 400 folks encouraged him to run his race and finish what he had begun. 400 folks encouraged him to run his race and finish what he had begun. And he did just that because he knew that infinite joy was just around the corner. Why? Was it because he gave his life? Was it because he gave his body over to be burned? no it wasn't because he gave his life but because Jesus gave his life and we'll close with this when Jesus sings verse 9 the answer is very different what profit is there in my death or literally my blood when Jesus says what profit is there in my blood the answer is everything 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 for his people our lives both now and forevermore are transformed And even if we face a long, long night of suffering here on earth, joy will come in the morning. Because Jesus' resurrection means that ours is certain. Brothers and sisters, whatever you're facing just now, and however long it goes on for, remember that morning is coming. Amen.